All right, we're going to go to John 18 today. And uh, as you go there, I want to remind you of just a couple things. Uh, First of all, every Sunday morning, we get together and pray. Uh, If you are part of a a service team, we do a prayer huddle at at 840 on Sunday morning just for five minutes. Uh, I believe prayer is an essential thing, and we're going to look at that a little bit today. But we also get together in the prayer room at 830. For for those of you who might want to just join us and sit down with us, I would invite you. And actually, we've moved it into my office just because it's a little bit further away from the hustle and bustle of everything going on out here. So come join us on Sunday morning at 830. um, And we just put put the service in the Lord's hands and put ourselves in the Lord's hands and pray for you, pray for each person coming. Um, If that is something you'd be interested in, you're welcome to see me about that or just join us at 830 uh, on a Sunday morning in the office there. All right. Other thing I want to mention is this. This year, July 4th, which is about a month away here, uh, winds up on a Saturday. And so a lot of people are going to be traveling in a way on the weekend of July 4th, July 5th, all that. I get that. Great. Have a wonderful time. Enjoy fireworks, all that jazz. But Sunday morning, July 5th, is still a Sunday morning, and we're going to be here, and we're going to do something different. And I know there will be less people here, but if you're around that weekend, come out and be a part. Because we are going to do something very different. We're calling it freedom to worship. And essentially the concept is this. We are going to fully exercise our freedom that we have in this country to worship our Lord. We're going to try to do everything we can to lift up His name. We're going to celebrate communion together. It will be a very different service than really anything we've ever done. Um, And so I'm going to say to you, if you're around that weekend, if you're not away or you have an option or right now when you're planning, if you can be around... Be here Sunday morning, July 5th, um, with whoever shows up, because God's going to show up, right? So we're going to be here, and we're going to worship the Lord together. And I just wanted to say that to you right now, kind of put that on your radar a month ahead of time, because what's going to happen is July 5th is going to come, and you're going to be all, you know, like still your ears ringing from the fireworks and all that stuff and all the picnic barbecue, whatever. And you're going to be like, I don't feel like going to church. And then you're going to hear about this amazing service that happened that everybody's like, oh, can you believe what God did? And you're going to be like, man, I missed it. And then I'm going to say, I told you so. So be here. All right. So John chapter 18 is where we are today. Um, think with me as we kind of get into this, this discussion today. Think with me about if I asked you to tell me what was the worst day of your life? What would you, probably a picture comes right into your head. Maybe you're somebody who's, who's got like a top 10 list of the 10 worst, you know, maybe you, it's hard for you to just pick one because, you know, it's not, it's not really that important that you get the right one for this day. But the worst day of your life, what made that the worst day of your life? And, and I think everybody has those days where you just kind of would like to take a big eraser and just erase the whole day. But here's why I asked you to think about that. If you could have done something to change whatever made that the worst day, would you have changed it? Would you have stopped something from happening or made something happen that didn't happen? Would you, if you had that power to change your worst day, to stop it, would you have? I think the reality for you, maybe we can get in our heads like, oh no, it may be what I am today or whatever. We got to do, but your first reaction is, of course, That is the natural human reaction to a bad circumstance. We we dig in, we turn around and we go, if something bad looks like it's coming or something bad is happening to you, you turn around and you dig into the bag of human resources and you say, what can I do to stop this? Right? That's what we do. 
What can I do to fix this? What can I do to make this better? What do I have in my bag that I can pull out and make that different? Simply put, we believe in our humanness that the answer to a bad day is the power to stop the bad. I think if we're honest, that's what we believe. Not that that's the truth, but that's our first reaction. And that way of thinking, that way of feeling, bleeds out into a lot of our life naturally because it is a human response. By the way, did you know that when you get saved, when you receive Jesus Christ as your Savior, that your natural responses don't go away? That God changes your soul, He changes your spirit, He makes you a new creation in Christ, but He doesn't change your flesh. So you have those same reactions you always had inside of you. So that fleshly human response to bad days is still going to be there for the rest of your life. Your flesh is never going to go, all right, I love this crappy day. This is great. Your flesh is like, how can we stop this? And so that way of feeling and thinking bleeds out. And so we start to do things like this. We assume that if something is good and we have the power to make it happen, that we should. Right? If something would be fun, if something is a good thing, then if I have the power to do it, I assume that I should because it's within my power to do it. Conversely, we assume that if something is bad and I have the power to keep it from happening or to stop it, then I should do that. If something feels bad or is bad or is threatening or dangerous and I have the power to thwart it, then I should. That's what we assume in our humanity. But Jesus lived a different way than that. And I don't know if you realize that. Jesus invites us to be his followers, but Jesus' approach to the bad and the power that he had was different than your and my natural response to bad. He certainly did good things. And he certainly stopped bad from happening, but it was the way that he got to the choices that he made that was different than the human reaction that we're just describing. Because what Jesus did is Jesus lived by following his father's plan, by trusting so much in the plan of God that whether good or bad came, he was not presumptive in how he dealt with it. He was looking for what is this part of God's plan or not. What it was in Jesus' life was an example of living by what you and I would call faith. He trusted his Father. And in trusting his Father, he sometimes walked into bad when he had the power not to. Pretty interesting stuff. As a matter of fact, if you think about it, in the Gospels, the temptations of Jesus were all about tests of faith, weren't they? When we see, I'm sure this, the enemy attacked him more than just in the temptations we see. But in temptations, the, each one of those temptations were about Jesus. Are you going to trust the Father or are you going to take matters into your own hands? He takes him up on the temple and he says, throw yourself off and see if the Father will test God, test the Father and see if he will save you. Right? You take it into your own hands and find out if the Father really cares about you. Oh, you're hungry after not eating for 40 days. Here's some stones, turn them into bread. Do what you can do to fix your problem. They were all that, you know, Jesus, one day you're going to rule the world, but if you'll bow down to me, if you make a choice to do something, I guarantee you'll have the world now. You can bypass this whole cross thing, and you can have the world now. You can act in a positive way and avoid bad and embrace, quote-unquote, 
good. Nothing wrong with eating when you're hungry. Nothing wrong with trusting God's providential care over you. Nothing wrong with embracing God's plan for you eternally. But the the question wasn't about do good and avoid bad. The question was about trust God or trust my own resources. There's no better example of that than what we see today. On the worst day of Jesus' life, on the worst night of his life on earth, Jesus is tested. And what I want to do is learn from what Jesus does and what he does not do as we read this story. Because as we go through this summer, uh, there's a lot of different things that are coming. Like I just talked about the worship day and, and Father's Day is coming and we have VBS and the, the closing program and teen cert. We got all kinds of things going on. But in, interspersed in those things, we're going to go through some of the most sacred stories ever recorded in all of history. The story of Jesus' death, his sacrificial death, his trial, his beatings, the betrayal today. We're going to look at those, some of the most sacred stories ever written as we go through the summer. So I hope that you're around uh, for most of them or that you keep up on the podcast or whatever as we go. So we're going to start in in John chapter 18. We're going to get through uh, verse 11 today, but we're going to just start with verses 1 and 2, kind of setting up the story, okay? So here's what he says in, in John chapter 18, verses 1 and 2. John writes this. When he had finished praying, Jesus left with his disciples and crossed the Kidron Valley. On the other side, there was an olive grove, and he and his disciples went into it. Now Judas, who betrayed him, knew the place because Jesus had often met there with his disciples. So that's kind of the setup. That's as, as we go out here into uh, you know, the, the night and the betrayal and the arrest and the trial and, and all that stuff. It starts here. Jesus leaves the upper room, and he heads out. And there's a few details here, kind of to give you a mental picture of what's happening. I don't know if you've ever watched a movie about this or whatever, but here's, here's what we find from here. Jesus leaves the upper room, and he walks, across, he walks out of Jerusalem, and there's a valley uh, on, the, on, the west, or on the east side of Jerusalem that goes down. It's called the Kidron Valley. It goes down into like a, a dried-up riverbed because Jerusalem's on a mountain. And on the other side of that valley is another mountain called the Mount of Olives. And so as Jesus walked up that mountain, he went to a place that we know of as Gethsemane. The word Gethsemane means uh, olive press, and it makes sense for olive presses to be on the Mount of Olives, right? So there's olive groves there, but there were a lot of these presses as, as people who grew olives, uh, harvested olives and, and turned it into olive oil and pressed the olives. So there were olive presses. But there was kind of a sense of a little privacy here. We find out in the story that where Jesus went was a little bit closed off and in some way it was private. Maybe there was a, a wall around it with, with a gate or, or a hedge around it that was closed off. And so Jesus goes into this place with his disciples. And what we find as we read right here is that this was a place where Jesus normally went with his disciples. Evidently, in the evening, after dinner, Jesus went here to pray. Uh, John says it here. Luke tells us it was Jesus' custom when he was in Jerusalem to visit the Mount of Olives. So they had a place that was kind of theirs. Maybe it was somebody they knew who owned this this olive press and the, the little gated spot where it was kept or whatever. But they had a private place outside where they would normally go. It was their custom that if they were in Jerusalem in the evening after dinner, they would go to this place after dinner. And that's important for this story as a setup because what it tells us is that Judas, who was going to betray Jesus, knew where Jesus would be this night. 
When Judas went to the, the chief priests and the servants of the chief priests and said, I will hand him over to you, he was thinking in his head, I know of a place where you can grab him and no one will be around because we go there almost every time we're in Jerusalem at night. And that's what they needed. They needed some way to arrest Jesus that wouldn't cause a big public stir because they were worried about a, a riot. And so Judas knows where he's going to go. And so that's kind of the setup to the story. But before we move on to like the, the, the meat of the story here, one thing that catches me off guard as I read this, and I don't know if it got, if it got you either, but here's how it starts. When Jesus had finished praying... He left with his disciples and he went to the Mount of Olives to Gethsemane. So he finished praying and they left to go to the Garden of Gethsemane. For what? What were they going to do in the Garden of Gethsemane? They were going to pray. Huh. So they, he just, we just read the longest prayer recorded in Scripture from Jesus, John chapter 17. He finished praying. He went out with his disciples to go pray. Does that challenge you at all? Is that something that that starts to mess with your head about what is this mindset that our Lord had about prayer that's different from mine? What is it that you think drove Jesus to this kind of prayer? And what's missing in us that when we finish praying, we go check, done, moving on, got other things to do now. Jesus went, okay, good, let's, let's close in prayer, and then let's open in prayer. You know, let's, let's finish praying here in the room, and then let's go out into the garden for the time where we normally pray outdoors. What's it tell us? Well, a couple things. First of all, it tells us that prayer was Jesus' pattern. It was a norm for him. The reason that Judas knew exactly where Jesus would be is because they didn't just go to the Mount of Olives to look at the stars or to hang out or to have conversation or play music. They went to the Mount of Olives to pray every time they were in Jerusalem. Do you think that it was like, oh, we're in Jerusalem, now we're going to go pray at night? Do you think the only time that the disciples of Jesus went out to pray at night was when they were in Jerusalem? What do you think? We do like this for yes? We do like this for no? Just in Jerusalem? No. This was wherever they were, after dinner or in the evening, was a time where they were habitual. They had a pattern of prayer. And what I want to say to you is this. Jesus is passing on his relationship with the Father to his disciples. And one of the ways that our Lord did that was in, by using the power of the pattern. I hope that you get this. There is so much power in pattern, and we just miss it all the time. We think there's power in new, in fresh, in what's next, and in our ADD world where everything's like, what's the next thing, and I'm tired of that song, and let's move on, and I'm tired of this job, and tired of you, and you know, all that kind of stuff. There is power in pattern. Parents, I hope that you get a hold of this. What you do and just keep doing is a pattern that you are passing on to your children. Even if they're grown, what you do and just keep doing says more than you can imagine. Just take going to church, for example. My, we had my parents' 50th uh, 
anniversary yesterday. And I said to them something I think is deeply true, which is this. One of the effects that they had on me, maybe one of the greatest effects they had on me, was that every Sunday we got up and went to church. I actually thought that was normal. I thought that was what everybody did. We just got up and went to church. I'm sure there were times people were sick, and I remember staying home from church a couple times, but you know what? When I was sick, it was, you got everything you need, Mark? We're going to church. And by the way, when we went to church, we went to Sunday school. Then we went to church. Then we went home, had lunch. Then we came back for youth group or choir practice. Then we had Sunday night church. And then we had Wednesday night. We had Awana. We had Bible study. We had prayer meeting. We went to church, man. All the time. We weren't like, oh, you know what? This week, I'm a little tired. This week, I don't feel it. You know what? It's a nice day. I'm heading down the shore. We weren't like that. And you know, my parents could have sat me down. They could have tried the power of the lecture. A lot of parents believe in the power of the lecture, right? I want to tell you something and you're going to get it. It was the power of the pattern that got me. We just did it and did it and did it. Some of you are in that exercise of the pattern right now. Some of you are exercising bad patterns, patterns that you don't want to pass on, but you're excusing them, right? But, but if you're in the middle of a pattern and you're doing the right thing, but it doesn't feel like anything's happening, don't believe the lie. There is power in the pattern. Just keep doing it, right? So Jesus wanted to pass on prayer, a conversation with his father. So what did he do? Every night he went out and prayed with his disciples. Every night. You think it got to them? You think it got through to them? Seems like they changed the world thereafter, so I'm guessing it probably did. And so I would say to you, believe in the power of pattern because our Lord did. Secondly, the only other thing I I think about before we move on to kind of my point for today is this. Prayer for our Lord was not a ritual or a chore or like this. This is how we do it. I know it's something I should do. I know it's something I should do. It was a passion. Now, why was prayer a passion for Jesus? If anybody didn't need to pray, it was Jesus, right? He already knew all that he should know. He, was, he wasn't going to God and saying, God, I, I don't know what's happening, and I don't know what's going on. We find that he knew all things that were going to happen. So. But our Lord loved to pray. He looked for free time so that he could go use it to talk to his Father. It's Like there's this relationship with his father that he thoroughly enjoyed and he believed that if I won't go and talk to my father, if I go and have time with him, it's going to fill me up. It's going to make me alive. It's going to be the best thing I can do. When was the last time you believed that? When was the last time that you looked forward to talking to your heavenly father? I hope that you get a taste of it as we get together in the name of Jesus, as we worship him and pray and we look into his word. I hope you get a taste. Some of you tell tell me on Sunday morning, I'm so glad to be here. I've had a hard week and I need to be here. I feel better already just being here. And that's a great thing. That's a taste. But the basis of it is the relationship you have with the Father. And so this was a passion for our Lord. It was something that he looked for opportunities to do. He didn't look for it to be something he checked off of his list. And so there is this lifestyle, there's this passion, there's this pattern of prayer. And why is that so important? Because as you may have noticed, life has big, hard moments. 
And how you practice is how you'll play. How you practice in life is what will happen when the hard stuff shows up. People say all the time, practice makes perfect. That is incorrect. You, some of you could practice for years and never be able to sing. Practice does not make perfect. Practice makes pattern. Practice makes habit, right? And so for you, the practicing of it, the working of it through, the living it in day in, day out, means that when hard times strike, you're already in a mode. You're not switching gears. And so Jesus, on the worst night of his life, goes back to his pattern of prayer. He goes out with his disciples, and we know this was a hard night for our Lord. But he's doing what he's done all along. And there's a pattern, and there's power in that pattern. There's an effect. And so pick up with me at verse 3. We're going to read down to verse 10 about what happens as Jesus gets arrested. And so I, I kind of want you to notice what happens here because I think there's a reason John includes this in the story. It says this, So Judas came to the grove, guiding a detachment of soldiers and some officials from the chief priests and Pharisees. They were carrying torches, lanterns, and weapons. Jesus, knowing all that was going to happen to him, went out and asked them, Who is it you want? Jesus of Nazareth, they replied. I am him. I am he, said Jesus. And Judas the traitor was standing there with them. When Jesus said, I am he, they drew back and fell to the ground. Again, he asked them, Who is it you want? And they told him, Jesus of Nazareth. I told you that I am he, Jesus answered. If you are looking for me, then let these men go. This happened so that the words he had spoken would be fulfilled. I have not lost one of those you gave me. Then Simon Peter, who had a sword, drew it and struck the high priest's servant, cutting off his right ear. The servant's name was Malchus. All right, so we see the scene in the garden, the scene of the betrayal. In this, we're not told how long the disciples and Jesus are there, but other, other Gospels give us a, a little bit more full description of what goes on in the garden that night. We see our Lord praying intently. The Bible talks about Him sweating great drops of blood. We see the disciples falling asleep again and again. So there was a long time that they were in the garden. And if you can imagine the agony that our Lord is in, there for a long time deep into the night, praying, exhausting himself, sweating great drops of blood, so much so that he goes to his disciples multiple times and wakes them up. So we're talking about a long time. So Jesus, humanly speaking, is clearly exhausted by the time Judas shows up. Wouldn't you say? He is worn out, wrung out, emotionally, spiritually exhausted by the time Judas gets there. At his most vulnerable But what I want you to see is it's not just Jesus' side of the equation that looks unbalanced. Jesus is weak. Jesus is drained. Jesus is tired. But when Judas shows up, look at how he shows up. It says he guides a detachment of soldiers. The word detachment there probably refers to a group of soldiers known as a maniple. It was a a little bit smaller group than than, uh, some of the larger groups, but it was somewhere between 200 and 600 men with Judas coming to the garden. Now picture that. Jesus, 11 disciples, a little olive grove with a little olive press. Hundreds of men show up that night. Overwhelmed, right? Roman soldiers who are there. The Roman soldiers are not there 
on the authority of Rome. In other words, Rome is not making the arrest, but the soldiers there to make sure the situation is contained. How are they making sure the situation is contained? They are overwhelming the situation with numbers. So as they come up to the garden, the whole point is there is absolutely no hope for anything except give in, give up. The chief priests and the Pharisees are there. They're the ones who have all these soldiers behind him. We see that the chief priest's servant is the one that Peter cuts off his ear. So the chief priest is there with the Pharisees. They're making the arrest with, with Judas. And as a matter of fact, Jesus is first taken, we'll see next, uh, to the religious leaders for a trial. We saw as we went through the Gospel of John, they had decided he had to die. They didn't know how to do it. So they're going to take him in the middle of the night when nobody's around, and they're going to take him to a trial, and they're going to kind of poke at him until they can figure out what will stick, what they can sell to the crowd. That's, what, that's the whole plan. And so the religious leaders are arresting them, but, but notice how this is portrayed. The, the people who are coming have all the advantages. They have the advantage of surprise, or so they think. Right? They haven't announced themselves. They're just marching up. They come with a spy. They come with somebody who's on the inside. Who, and, and we see later on that Judas betrays him with a kiss. He goes up and says, I'll show you which one is the one to arrest by a kiss. And these are the men who are now soldiers, but they are also armed. They are holding lights. And it is all meant to say there's this huge imbalance. Exhausted Jesus with a sleeping group of disciples and a bunch of men armed for battle showing up. Do you see that? That's how the story is portrayed. And when all these men go up, what it says is Jesus went out to meet them. So what? Like what would you do if hundreds of people showed up with swords and torches to arrest you? You'd probably dig a hole in the ground, right? You got to get out of here somehow. Jesus walks out. Who are you looking for? I mean, what's going on here? What you would expect to happen is not what's happening. And so Jesus, when they say, we're looking for Jesus of Nazareth, Jesus replies, I am he. Now, we said that, in case you missed it, John repeats it again in verse 6, when Jesus said, I am he. If, if you didn't think this was something big, that what happens is a really big deal. Because when Jesus says, I am he, something really amazing happens. Did you see it in verse 6? All of them, all of them fall backwards. Drew back, it kind of means like this. When he said, I am he, they all kind of went backwards and stumbled over one and all fell to the ground. Hundreds of men, armed to the teeth, soldiers. Now, there are some commentaries out there that are like, well, this is what happened. You know, when Jesus came out and announced himself, they were surprised. And they like stumbled and they like domino effect and they all fell down. Are you kidding me? It's a group of Roman soldiers. They're the ones who are ready. They're the ones ready for the fight. They're the ones that are prepared. They've taken their stance. Jesus walks out and says, I am he. And John connects it to the I am he. When Jesus said, I am he, they drew back and fell to the ground. What's going on here? Well, what happens here is this. Jesus, in the, in the original language here, it, what's recorded from John is not I am he, it's I am. And I don't know if that rings a bell with you, but in the Old Testament, when Moses sees the burning bush and says, who am I going to tell the Israelites sent me because they're going to laugh at me? 
God said, here is my name. I am. The self-existent one. The one who does not need anyone or anything. God alone, who sits on the throne. Right? I am. That's the name God gave himself. It is the name Jews were very careful with. The proper name of God. It is the name that indicates who he is. Now, there is no sense here that Jesus said, I am, in Hebrew, as as God would have in the Old Testament. But the impact of Jesus speaking the name of God and ascribing it to himself is the thing that is connected to all of these soldiers who are ready for battle, falling backwards to the ground, torches and swords in hand. Do you get that picture? So in other words, when they come to overpower Jesus and any person looking at the situation would say, it's an easy win for them. Jesus comes out and says two words. And every single one of them falls backward to the ground. What is Jesus demonstrating for us? What's he showing us here? He had the power. He was not at a disadvantage. He had the power to end this, to stop them, to overwhelm them. And it wasn't going to be hard. He spoke two words and they were done. Our God is able. This is not even a battle. It's not even like a struggle. Jesus demonstrates By just speaking a word, like we're told in the the Old Testament, that God spoke words and all of creation came into existence. The spoken word of our Lord, identifying himself as God Almighty, was enough to overpower a much larger group of men ready to fight. On the worst night of Jesus' life, he could have easily and simply stopped it. I don't know if you've ever considered that. We may have thought this and we may have understood this, but have you processed it? His disciples saw it. They watched it happen. And Jesus has all the power that he needs to stop the bad from happening. The injustice, the trial, the pain, the suffering, the death, the destruction, the confusion, all of it. With two words, he could have stopped it. What does Jesus choose to do with that power? What does he choose to do with what he's able to do? Well, after they get up and gather themselves and try to reestablish some dignity, Jesus asks them again, who is it you want? And he says, they say Jesus of Nazareth. He immediately calms the situation. And then he basically surrenders to them. If you're looking for me, then just take me. Let these men go. That's basically what he says. Here I am. Take me. Having asked the question of them, who are you looking for? He asked the question twice and basically says, since you've responded both times by just saying me, then none of the rest of these guys should get arrested. Who's in control of the situation? Jesus had all the power in the world to save himself. Who did he save? Everybody else. Huh. Most of the time, your humanity would like to take your power and use it for you. Our world loves to do this. If you're out there in the business world, what do people use the advantage for? For themselves. If they can use the advantage to make money off of you for themselves, that's what they'll do. I told you last week our refrigerator died. 
We bought a refrigerator. We got it delivered yesterday. When I bought this refrigerator, what I found out is the new warranty refrigerators goes like this. You've got 30 days if anything breaks on that. After that, good luck. Oh, but by the way, we'll sell you a $300 policy if you'd like to have it work for longer than 30 days. How about that? Do you know why people do that? Because it's the right thing to do. Because they're upstanding, good, honest people that they really care about their product. No! Because they can. Because they can make money, right? That's our world. That's what our world does. That's not what Jesus did. Jesus could have saved himself, but he did not. What he did instead is save them. And he illustrates to them so that there's no question in their mind that this was not a question of Jesus being taken advantage of or overwhelmed or not having the power to save himself. He had the power to save himself, but he saved them instead. He protected his disciples and cared for them. It's interesting that the Apostle John is the one who highlights this and even kind of refers back to the words that Jesus had spoken. I will make sure that none of those you gave me is lost. But to me, the challenge is even bigger than that. Because as you look at your life and as you look at your normal human reaction to say, what can I do about this? What Jesus shows you here is that the most important question in your life is not what can I do about this. Having the power to save myself or save others that I want to save or fix suffering or my suffering or other suffering to escape danger, that's usually where we trip up and stumble. Because if I can, I will. But Jesus can and does not. We assume doing good things, making things right, those are the best things. We're going to do all kinds of things we want to do. But sometimes what they stop us from doing is what is our calling, what God wants for us, what God has for us. I think I'm going to do what makes me happy and free, and everybody should be happy, right? Do what makes you happy. That's a big discussion in our world right now. Well, if it makes you happy, you've got to do what makes you happy. Problem is, you don't know what will make you happy. The most important question is not what can I do. The most important question you will ever face in your dark times and in your good times is a question of trust. Will I embrace the Father's plan for me? Will I embrace the Father? Will I act and live as though it is the best thing possible to be exactly where the Father wants me, no matter what it looks like, no matter what the experience is like, no matter what road I go down, will I believe it with all of my soul that it is the best place for me to be exactly where the Father wants me? And by the way, even if I have the power to stop it, that's when it, that's when it gets real, right? That's when the rubber meets the road, is when I find out that I can opt out of this. I don't need to do this. I can just be done with it. Jesus could have. What kept him there? What stopped him from calling down thousands of legions of angels from heaven to save him and wipe people out? This wasn't the Father's plan. And I believe in the Father's plan for my life. Jesus is not the only one in Scripture that we find in that position. Remember the story of Abraham and Isaac in the Old Testament? God asked Abraham to take his son, the son of promise, up on a hill and sacrifice him. To build the altar, to tie up his son, to pick up the knife. Could Abraham have stopped any of that? Sure he could have. His greatest heartache was going to be at his own hand. But why was Abraham willing to do that? 
My God said, do this. Right? Where are we? Joseph, at the end of his life, could he have paid his brothers back? Did he have the power to make them pay for what they had done? Absolutely he did. But why didn't he? Because Joseph said, this was God's plan. And I'm thankful for it. And look at what good it's done. In the New Testament, we find Paul writing and he says, don't repay anyone evil for evil because you can't do it. Is that what he says? No. The reason he gives the instructions is because you can do it. And most of us have this week, right? But what he says is, don't repay anyone evil for evil, but instead overcome evil with good. Why? Because it's fair? Because you can't do anything different? No, because it's the Father's way for you. Believers, we're so wrapped up. We have such a reputation for trying to tell everybody else what's God's way for them. How about if you and I just start living God's way for us? How about if we just be the people who say, I believe in Him so much that whatever He thinks, that's the best thing. And let's live that way. That's what the example of our Lord is for us. But then there's this contrast, and I just want to finish with these last two verses, because then you get to, you know, Peter. Verse, I'm sorry, verse 10 and 11 is where we're going to be. Verse 10 and 11, here's what he says. Then Simon Peter, who had a sword, drew it out and struck the high priest's servant, cutting off his right ear. The servant's name was Malchus. And Jesus commanded Peter, put your sword away. Shall I not drink the cup the Father has given me? Here's a contrast, right? Jesus, all power and authority, walks out. Who do you want? Here I am. Take me. But here's what human reaction does. Peter goes, this is bad. This is really bad. What do I have on me? I've got a sword. All right, let's go. Let, I, this is what I can do. And he starts swinging the sword. That's what you and I do. Now, Peter, to his credit, is not intimidated by hundreds of soldiers. Why do you think that is? Because he saw Jesus speak the word and he said, ah, it's time to fight. He didn't pick up on the second part of that, where Jesus said, we're not going to fight. Here I am, let these men go. Peter has faith, but it's misguided faith. Peter believes what we humanly believe. He assumes that suffering that can be avoided should be avoided. And if it's for my Lord, I'm going to stand with him. And that mindset that is inside of all of us that says, if I can avoid suffering, I should avoid suffering, is what leads us down paths of great mistake. Because eventually it goes like this. If I can avoid suffering, then I should avoid suffering. If I can make it so that someone I love can avoid suffering, then I should make it so that they avoid suffering. Well, if God is able and I'm suffering, then He should make me avoid suffering. But He's not. So what does that mean about God? Do you see how we get... We go down a path of human logic and apply it to God, and we say, now we understand, God doesn't care about me. But look at Jesus here. Jesus didn't go, now God, Father, what are you doing here? He said, this is my Father's plan. This is my Father's will. I embrace it. I walk forward. Peter says, oh no, this can't be because it's bad. Jesus can't die. He's the king. 
And so this guiding principle for decision-making, instead of following God's plan and calling, we, we get into presumption. And so Peter, it says he has a sword. The word is for a short sword. And he saw Jesus do this, and so he starts swinging. And it says the guy he hit was a guy named Malchus, who was the high priest's servant. And I'm sure when it talks about cutting off his right ear, I'm sure he wasn't swinging for the right ear. Do you know what I mean? Peter was out to like, I'm going to start taking people out. So he's swinging, and Malchus kind of like, what are you doing, crazy boy? And like he swings, and he cuts his ear off. And so this, this detail, we find out that Jesus picks up the ear, tells Peter, heals the servant, tells Peter, put the sword away. What's going on? Can you feel the, the, the contrast between Jesus' reaction and Peter's reaction in the garden? Ultimately, Jesus says, put your sword away. I'm going to drink the cup my father's given him. Peter, Jesus saves Peter from himself. But he doesn't just save him and say, stop. He corrects what's driving the wrong actions of Peter. In Matthew, we see Jesus say to Peter in this moment, don't you think I could call to my father and he would send me 12 legions of angels? Peter, did you just miss what I just did? Don't you think, I don't need help. This is where I'm supposed to go. Peter, I get that you're for me, but listen, I'm going this direction. What is happening here is not out of control or out of hand. It is God moving and God working, even as danger and threat seem to be overwhelming me. Folks, we define deliverance as when God takes me out of trouble. God defines deliverance as when God takes me through trouble. We don't like that definition. Through to me means, you know, like and God's through might be the rest of your time on earth. Okay, God, take me through it like today. No, through. Like I'm going to carry you through all the way to the bitter end of it. Did, did God carry Jesus through? Was deliverance by walking through or by escaping out of? Jesus' words to Peter, don't you think I'm going to drink the cup my Father has given to me? That cup is the word for his death. It's the word for tasting the wrath of God on sin for all mankind for all time. Punishment eternally for the sinfulness of man. Jesus said, my father gave me this cup. It is bitter, it is hard, and I will drink it because it's my father's cup for me. Sometimes God asks you to drink a bitter cup. Will you? What's your cup to drink? What has God put in front of you that is hard and and distasteful? We think when, when something distasteful comes, when something hard comes, that the answer is try harder. But God's answer is, trust me. What will we do? Yeah, certainly there will be things to do if we're trusting God. There will be stuff He asks us to do. There will be stuff He asks us not to do. But it's not about what I do or don't do. It's about why am I doing it? Am I doing it because I'm convinced this is what God wants? Or am I doing it because it makes me feel better? It makes my life better. It's what I would like. God will ask you sometimes not to do what you can do as an expression of your faith in Him. And I would say that's more regular than you and I would like to believe. God will give you the ability and God will give you the challenge and then say, now surrender that ability to me and just walk through this. Has He ever done that for you? 
And that's the stretching of our faith. Will we let him stretch our faith like that? And so just to me, this is just a question that I want to leave with you as you go from this place today. Where is your hope? Is it in your strength and your power and your resources or his? Who's going to hold your life this week? Whose plan is going to be the answer for you today? Who's going to take your yesterdays and and manage all of that stuff that's already happened? Who's going to be about tomorrow and, and have your tomorrows and all the stuff that's coming for you and everyone that you care about? Who's going to be the answer for all of that? Maybe today the prayer that you need to pray is, Lord, I... I want to trust you like Jesus trusted you. I'm ready to lay down any efforts, all of my efforts, and let you take me through whatever you want to take me through. If you want me to do something, I'm ready to do it. Show me, I'll do it. But if you want me to wait, I'm going to trust you however long it takes, whatever that pathway does, wherever that pathway goes. And if you take me down a pathway into pain or darkness... No matter what, my faith is in you more than it's in what I see. People of God, will we live like our Lord? Will we follow our Lord in that way? Or will we always take matters into our own hands? I pray that we will trust Him like that.